Um, right now, what we're going to do, we're going to get into God's Word. So uh, we started a series a few months ago, going through the book of Revelation. Today, we are in Revelation chapter 10. If you guys grab your Bibles to, uh, and open up to Revelation chapter 10, if you don't have a Bible, please feel free to grab one. We do have some in the back. Um, and uh, if you guys don't have a Bible, it's our gift to you. If you take it home, you're not stealing it. We want you to have it. So don't feel guilty. Enjoy it. It's probably one of the few things that you can take from here that we're not going to have a problem with. Um, take a Bible. We want you to have a Bible. Um, so Revelation chapter 10, uh, we started this several months ago. And one of the things that we've basically tried to emphasize, and we keep going back to this over and over again, is that the book of Revelation really is about Jesus. It starts out by describing this is a revelation or an unveiling of Christ, of Jesus Christ. And so we've essentially said from the very beginning, we want to make certain that Jesus gets the majority of our attention, not speculation. Um, and there's a lot to speculate in the book of Revelation. There's a lot to guess on. And what we want to do is we want to make sure that we spend the majority of our time on Christ and uh, side notes or marginal notes we can speculate on, we can disagree with each other in this church, um, and we can do so in a way that just honors Christ and is loving and welcomes many different perspectives and views within this body, within this church, because frankly, as we've been trying to point out, there's been hundreds of views about the book of Revelation, but one thing all agree on is that it is about Jesus. One thing we need to all agree on is Christ in the text. So that's what we're going to focus on. Today we're going to take a look at a little of a passage, a little uh, kind of a transition uh, in the story of the book of Revelation. It's kind of halfway point through it. So if you've been with us from the beginning, we're just about halfway through the book of Revelation. We've been kind of making our way through a little bit slow up into this point, but now we're going to start catching up with regard to speed, moving through a little bit faster. Um, and we're going to be taking a look at a little section here today. That basically is broken down or divided into two main sections. It's this section when John uh, is seeing this series of events transpire before his eyes. Uh, we saw there's this one series of events called the seven seals being unfolded. And there's a series of events and difficulties, some of which are like uh, calamities upon the earth. And then the seventh seal that gets opened um, basically dovetails into another series of seven uh, trumpet events or judgments that end up happening. We saw all six of those already up until this point, and now we're kind of moving into sort of the seventh. And the seventh uh, trumpet will basically open up into another series of seven more judgments, and then basically that's the end. That's the end of the series of judgments that God will bring upon the earth. Jesus will come back. Jesus' church will be with him. Uh, God will take the wrongs that are in this planet, in this earth, on a universal level, not just in terms of you and I as human beings, but in terms of everything that's wrong within this planet. That means uh, there's disease, there's death, people taking advantage of other people, uh, has had its reign for far too long. The way that we know that uh, sin has ruled and reigned far too long is because death is the sure-tail sign of sin. If you ever had any thought in your mind of, well, maybe sin's gone, all you have to do is be reminded of the fact that we all die. And the moment you begin to consider death is when you begin to realize death is because sin is in existence. When, when, when sin is completely eradicated, when sin is done away with, then death will also go away as well. 
This is why uh, New Testament writers talk about what's happened to people that are Christians is a new birth, new life. Uh, Even though our bodies, our physical bodies may die, God will actually give us a 2.0 version. It's called the resurrection. We will be resurrected. We will be given a new body uh, to match what God has already done in our soul, to give us a new body that will match the new life that has taken place within our soul. Um, And death will be swallowed up the way the Bible describes. It will be conquered. The way that death was destroyed was sort of in a kind of a, a, a moment of irony. God conquers death. How? By death. Kind of this ironic situation. Jesus conquers death or has victory over death by he himself subjecting himself to dying. Jesus dies. How can God do that? Because God's God. Can't God not die? And the answer is the incarnation. Jesus took on a body, just like you and I, so that he could die. So that the physical body could suffer pain. So that the physical body could die. And as a result of that action on God's behalf, death has been conquered. All those who trust Christ, all those who love Christ, will also conquer death. And death will be swallowed up. Christ will reign and rule forever. And those who love Jesus will be with him. But we're at the series in the book of Revelation now where these judgments are coming upon uh, the earth that's broken. And upon people that have chosen to try to remove God from their life. And God is really basically allowing all their idols, all the things they worship, all the things they devote themselves to, to crumble, to break, to be destroyed, to be wiped out to experience corruption in a very fast way called judgment, because really that's kind of what it is. Uh, we live in a day and age, we live in a world, obviously, where even if nothing were to happen, no tsunami were to take place, no you know, massive flooding would happen, all the things that we have that are metal, for example, will rust without the assistance of a tsunami. It's a slow process of destruction. What God does is he speeds up the process of decay and destruction by bringing these calamities on the earth to basically give as a very tangible evidence all things, in this, all things that are in this world are at best uh, parodies of himself, are at best uh, just things that mimic or mock the everlasting God who is life. Everything else promises life but never delivers. They actually fail. And they leave us wondering, and they leave us broken and wounded and destroyed, but God alone delivers. That's basically the story of what's happening. At the end, God will take it all back and renew all things, and those who love Jesus will be with Jesus. Those who do not love Jesus won't be with Jesus, and they'll be cast into a place of darkness, the way the Bible describes it. So with that, we're going to take a look at Revelation chapter 10. I'm going to pray, and we'll get to work in this chapter. Jesus, I just ask right now that you would help us to approach your word um, in a way that causes us to see Jesus in a new light, in a light that humbles us. God, we again just confess we don't know every answer. We don't know every little nuance there is to know in the book of Revelation. There's a lot of things, God, that just bring us confusion. There's a lot of things to us uh, that we just, we don't understand. Uh, But, Father, we do pray that you would help us just to see Christ in a light that gives us fuel in our hearts uh, to worship you, to love you, to respond to you, to honor you. 
And so, Lord, we even ask this morning that as we look at your word, that you would just give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear the things that your uh, spirit desires to speak to us. And I pray, God, that we would have humble hearts to respond to it and ultimately to react by giving you worship, by responding by praising you, by responding by giving our lives to you. And so we just commit this time in your hands right now. We ask all these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Revelation chapter 10, beginning at verse 1, says this. And then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, uh, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head. And his face was like the sun, and his legs were like pillars of fire. Or his legs were like, uh, like pillars of fire, verse 2. And he had a little scroll open in his hand. And he set his right foot on the sea, and his left foot he put on the land. And he called out with a loud voice, like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders then sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write. But I heard a voice coming down from heaven saying, Seal up uh, what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. And then the angel, uh, whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land, raised his right hand to heaven, and he swore to him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, and the earth is, and what is in it, the sea and what is in it, and then there would be no more delay, but that in all the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, he says the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants and the prophets. So John starts off basically and he sees kind of in this little transition or transitory type of a passage, he sees this mighty angel come down from heaven. Again, so it comes from heaven and it stands upon the earth. One of the things that we try to point out again, over and over again throughout this passage or throughout the whole text really, is the book of Revelation is filled with symbolism. Now, those that would traditionally take a stance and say, you know, no, we've got to read the book totally literal, um, they're not even honest with that themselves because nobody reads a book literally. I'll give you an example. John talks about, we'll read in a second here, and he says, and then I saw a scroll in his hand and I ate it. So the question is, you know, in a literal sense, literal interpretation of that means that John took the scroll, grabbed the fork, grabbed the knife, maybe a little ketchup, and ate the scroll, literally. Did John literally eat the scroll? Probably not. But it's symbolic of, or metaphorical of, the idea of taking God's word and ingesting it, or bringing it into your life. So even in that type of language, I think sometimes the disconnect for us as Americans, or maybe even Westerners, is the way we Westerners read things is very literal. Jews aren't stuck in that, okay? Jews oftentimes, in Hebraic literature, they can very much so read stories with a lot of symbolism, and it makes sense to them. They're not necessarily all, you know, stuck on this mentality that it has to be literal. Westerners, we want everything to be literal. And the reality is, we live in a culture that there are symbols even in our own culture, things that we say, idioms that we speak, that are literal, or that, that, that sound, I mean, if you did it literally, it would be kind of weird, uh, but they're symbolic. So even in the book of Revelation, there's symbolic language that needs to be understood. Now, at the same time, there are moments, obviously, things that are to be taken literally. Like, for example, it says that an angel came down. What well, was there an angel? Yeah, probably. It, that seems to make a lot of sense. Um, did he literally have be, these big legs like pillars of fire? Possibly. I mean, yeah, it's, it seems like that could be the case. Did he literally stand one foot on the sea? I mean, again, John seeing this, now, the question is, will there be a time where this angel will literally come, possibly, but again, 
we, we don't need to necessarily get so hung up on trying to figure this out in a literal sense, but make sure that we don't miss the message. That what's really happening here is John sees this mighty, profound, powerful angel. The word angel in Greek, angelos, uh, can also be translated messenger. Um, Jesus, by the way, can oftentimes be referred to as a messenger in the New Testament. He is. Um, also, an, an archangel can be referred to as an angelos or a messenger. So just because you read the word angelos, uh, some would kind of, conf- you know, they, they, they've tried to speculate, you know, who is uh, the identity of this angel? Is it an archangel? Is it Jesus? And again, sort of the, uh, the gamuts run from all sorts of perspectives, try- people trying to figure this out. And to be quite honest with you, um, you know, what's the right answer someone might ask? Yes. I mean, just, you know, I don't, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, just, just study it, be humble about it. At the same time, when maybe if you come up with a solution, you're like, I'm certain it's Jesus. Well, just realize that there's, you know, a lot of other people in the world today that love Jesus, believe this book, trust this book, that might not think it's Jesus. So there's really no reason to kind of go head-to-head, toe-to-toe with somebody over something like that. So frivolous. That's why I would just say be humble about it. Realize that there's certain things that, you know, we can... Uh, agree to disagree and not break any fellowship, not cause any problem or division over it. It's not really throwing the rest of the story into a tailspin. So um, John sees this mighty angel come down, mighty powerful being come down, um, and it either if it's either Jesus, great, or it's some angel representing Jesus, whatever the case is, the description of this angel is very similar in a lot of ways to what Jesus sort of looks like in Revelation chapter 1. So Whoever it is, whatever the identity of this guy is, is obviously powerful. You don't want to mess with him. He's got feet that are like trunks of burning fire. Uh, his face is like the sun. He's got a rainbow over his head. He's not the type of guy you want to wake up with and just brawl, all right? He's the type of guy you want to be a little bit mellow around. Um, watch your tongue. And so that's kind of what happens. John is in amazement of this mighty angel that comes down. He notices that this angel is obviously big enough to put one foot on the water, one foot on the dry ground. I think, again, this is sort of, if, if, it's, if it is real, uh, it's also speaking in terms of symbolic language. I think the idea behind that is, is, is if to say, uh, this belongs to me, this is my territory. I think this uh, motif sort of harkens back to the book of Joshua. When God tells Joshua, every word that you set the sole of your foot, that's yours. It's the idea. And I think that's what this angel's doing. He's coming down. He's saying, the dry ground is mine. The water's mine. It's all mine. It's all mine. It's all belong- it all belongs to God. I'm here as God's representative to take back what rightfully belongs to us. Because you guys have abused it. You've destroyed it. You've, made, uh, uh, you've worshipped it as an idol. You've, rather than worship God, used creation as a means to glorify and exalt God. You've used creation as an end in and of itself, and you've worshiped it. And so we're taking it back. We're going to redeem it. And not only that, not only have you worshiped it, but in doing so in worshiping it, you've corrupted it. You've destroyed it. The earth is not what it should be. It's not what it could be. Um, and let me just say something real quick. Uh, there's, there, there are Christians, I think well-intended Christians, that kind of have sort of adopted a mentality of the earth as being, ah, who cares about the earth? Because one of these days we're going to be gone from it anyhow. So they abuse it or mistreat it. And it's all sort of this, this mentality of, oh, God's going to get rid of it anyhow. God's going to destroy it anyhow. God's going to start new from scratch anyhow, right? I mean, doesn't Peter say he's going to consume it with a burning hot heat? And so why spend any time, any energy, even being care or caring about creation, caring about culture in which we live in? 
And the answer to that is, quite simply, um, because you have a proper understanding of the doctrine of creation. Christians ought to care about this earth in which we live. Christians ought to care about the culture in which we're placed because one, we're good missionaries. Two, we have a good theology of creation. When God created the earth, he gave it to Adam and Eve. And he says, this is yours. Be fruitful, multiply, take my earth and cultivate it in such a way where it brings about beautiful things and gardens and culture and cities and art and music and poetry and good things. It's called cultivating the earth. It's a good thing. And guess what? When God destroyed the earth after the flood, the very first thing God says to, says to Noah is almost word for word exactly what he said to Adam and Eve. So in this new earth that's just been destroyed by a flood, God says, hey, the earth is mine. I give it to you. Cultivate it. Enjoy it. Create culture. Make cities. Build gardens. You know, do all sorts of good things on this planet. You know what? God's never changed his mind on that. Jesus never came along and says, what's up? And started a brand new religion. Christians can now treat this place like an ashtray because I'm going to destroy it anyhow. He's never recanted that. He's never changed his mind on that. So Christians ought to care about our environment, not as those that worship the environment. We don't worship the environment. We don't worship trees or forces in nature. We worship the God of the trees, the God who created nature. And because we worship God, because we love God, we realize that everything that we have in this world is a gift to us from God to care for, to take care of. Okay, does that make sense? In the same way, as Christians, we should not only care about souls that are lost, that are potentially able to be saved, but also care about this earth and the environment in which we live in that is broken and destroyed because of the abuse of fallen mankind because one day God will restore it. That's the hope of where Revelation is heading. Creation starts off in a garden. The book of Revelation ends in a city. Gardens that are cultivated, guess what they become? Cities. So all creation is heading to something. Guess who's going to create the city? God will, but the way God does this is by taking image bearers in the image of Christ, who love Christ, who love culture, who love art, who love expression, who love music, who love poetry, who love building things and that are redeemed in the image of Christ, they build all of this, not as an ending of itself. We don't worship music. We don't worship art. We don't worship beauty. But we worship God, who is the fountainhead of all artistic expression and all beauty and all greatness. Does that make sense? It's all basically situated in our understanding of the proper perspective, proper theology of creation. When we understand creation, initial creation, and new creation rightly, Christians aren't running away from culture. Christians aren't trying to bag in culture and destroy culture. We're actually trying to create culture that's renewed in the image of Christ. So the angel stands on the sea and on the earth basically saying we're reclaiming it. The prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray is actually beginning to unfold. When Jesus says, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There's going to be this fusion of earth marrying, uh, 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 heaven marrying earth. God will bring the two together and that's what we will see at the end of the book of Revelation where Jesus will come and rule and reign on this earth and God's image bearers will rule and reign with him. Not as spirits, but in a resurrected 
body. Body. Physical body. Like the one that you have right now? No. Better. Can it eat? Yeah. That's the beauty of it. I mean, Jesus ate right after he resurrected. He had fish. He's like rummaging through the refrigerator. And it's awesome because that's what heaven's going to be like. It will be full of just enjoying this life that God had intended, although in a way that glorifies him and honors him in a way. That's what Paul talks about. He says there will come a day where this corruptible body will take on incorruption, meaning even though now in this life, in this world, this body which we have, this earth which we have is subject to death, one day Christ will renew it. It will be completely consummated in a way where we will have a brand new body that will reflect the image of Christ, reflect the image of God. We will be complete in the way that God wants us to be complete. So the angel stands on the earth, on the sea, saying, we're taking it back, and we're going to redeem it, we're going to renew it. And then basically goes on, and it says, he sees this uh, scroll in his hand. A lot of people speculate as to what the scroll is. Um, Some have thought that maybe it's the seven-sealed scroll possible. Some have thought maybe it's another scroll. Uh, But whatever it is that John is basically told, go take the scroll and then eat it. Verse 8 says that. And the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. And they said, so I went to the angel and I told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take it and eat it. I think it's kind of funny. Think about this massive angel, all right? His feet are literally on fire. His face is like the sun. He's got a rainbow over his head. He's obviously big enough to have one foot on the ocean, one foot on dry ground. He's got the scroll in his hand. And John's basically told, go take a scroll out of that guy's hand. Okay, you got to understand, most of the times, almost every single time throughout the biblical narrative, whenever an angel comes out on the scene, people's first response is to fall down dead. The first words out of any angel's mouth typically is, fear not. Right? It's not because that's the script. He's just like, oh my gosh, what should I say? Well, that's right. Fear not, you know? It's like, What's the worst, first thing I need to say? Fear not. It's because the guy that he's called to go talk to is dead. Or is like laying on the ground acting like he's dead because he's freaked out. And so the first time, the first in angels, usually when they see human beings on the ground because they're absolutely stunned afraid, they're like, don't be afraid of me. I'm a messenger from God. And John's basically told, go to this angel standing on the sea, standing on the dry ground, and take the scroll out of his hand. Can you imagine that task? They're like, yes, Lord. Uh, okay. And so John goes up and he says, scroll, please. And the guy gives him a scroll. The angel gives him a scroll. And then John basically is told, verse 9, so I went to the angel and I told him, give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take it and eat. And it will be in your stomach bitter. And in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and I ate it. And it was sweet as honey in my mouth. And But when I had eaten it, my stomach had became, become bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. Now, whatever this scroll is, uh, basically what it does is it speaks of the work that God's doing in terms of redemption, the judgment that God's bringing, but also the promises of hope that God is bringing. That's interesting because the way Jews would have understood God's word is they, they had a very, very high regard, high view for God's word. All, all Jews did, even scribes and Pharisees. Um, which is kind of a unique situation because these people loved God's word. They studied God's word. Most of them memorized 
probably the entire Torah, which would have been the first five books of Moses, they would have understood and lived by God's word. So most Jews in their families, in their households, they would have trained their kids to also understand, know, and memorize God's word. So what I want you to basically see is that this concept of eating God's word or you know, swallowing God's word is not sort of unique to the book of Revelation. I want to give you a couple examples of kind of what that means uh, because I think it helps us to try to understand this. So the next slide, um, I just kind of wrote up here, the motif of eating the scroll, God's word, uh, was a way of expressing the importance of having God's ways or his heart become one with ours. So the idea is this, is that the reason why we consume or eat or partake or indulge in God's word or meditate on God's word is what another word that the psalmist would use, which uh, the word meditate can also mean like regurgitate. Like, I study it, uh, and then I bring it back up, and I think about it, and meditate upon it, and swallow it again, and spit it back up, and think about it. It's this idea of just making sure that my mind is being in sync with God. That my ways, my heart, my life are, are, are being lived and walked in accordance with the way God is. So the problem is this. As human beings, um, all of us are prone to wander. Just like the song says, prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love. It's how we are. By sin. We weren't created that way per se, but because of our parents, Adam and Eve, we inherited a sinful nature. This is why you don't have to train, you know, two-year-old kids to lie. Nobody sits down with them and says, okay, we're going to lesson today is lying. We're going to teach you to be deceptive. Kids naturally know how to do wrong. Nobody needs to treat them or, or train them how to do this or teach them how to do this, they just do that. In fact, parents have to train kids not to do that. Parents have to train kids to be nice, to be polite, to say thank you, to, you know, to, to use uh, please and thank you and words that show kindness and responsibility. Because in their hearts, by nature, we are, like what Paul says, children of wrath. Meaning that we are belonging to our father, the way Jesus would have put it, Satan. We do not, by nature care about doing what God wants us to do by nature. None of us are. That's what the Bible speaks of when it talks about blindness. Because sometimes people might be like, I'm not blind, I see. Right, but the reality is, is that by nature in our heart, we don't intuitively have a desire to please God. You know that? We just don't. We don't have a desire to choose God. We don't have a desire to really want God. We want other things. We want idols. We want other things that bring us pleasure. We want other things that glorify us. We want other things that exalt us. But we really don't want God. And apart from a work of the Spirit, then we really don't want anything to do with God. And then when God does a work in our hearts, now we actually want God. And so we read God's Word. We study God's Word. We love God's Word. Because God's Word actually becomes, like what the psalmist says, a light unto our feet and a lamp unto our path. It guides us. The opposite is we walk in darkness. God's word is like a light. Imagine walking in a dark room, no light whatsoever, no nightlight. It's just pitch black. And yet the word of God is like this light that kind of lights our path. I'll give you an example. Take a look at Psalm 107. Uh, Some were fools. This is kind of a great psalm. It's actually uh, kind of a story of several different uh, testimonies of people that had gone through pretty crazy things throughout their lives, and yet God uh, came upon each one of them and basically helped them. In this particular testimony, Psalm 107, 17, it says some were fools uh, through their sinful ways. And because of their iniquities, they suffered affliction. 
And then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. And they sent out his word, and he healed them and delivered them from their destruction. So here's basically what the psalmist uh, sort of uh, chronicles for us, is that some people, uh, they lived in sinful ways, according to evil desires, and they just sort of did what was by nature. And by nature, that led to bad decisions. Those bad decisions led to bad circumstances in their life, and they ended up kind of being all messed up and ruined. And yet, at some point, they cried out to God, saying, God, help me. And in their distress, God came to them, and the way the psalmist uses this, he says, God sent his word, and he delivered them. I love this, because he describes, he says, God's word comes, and it brought healing to them, and it brought deliverance to them. Not only did it heal them, but it also delivered them from the bondage of their idols. See, that's the curious thing about idols. Little idols, little things of idolatry, little things that we devote ourselves to, we think that we can just sort of control it and handle it, but we really can't. We end up getting destroyed as a result of it. And probably one of the greatest examples of this uh, is like drug usage. I mean, this is why, you know, I think maybe one of the reasons why probably Christians have this tendency to so overemphasize drugs uh, that you shouldn't do it, and you shouldn't do it anyhow, because it's one of the most clearly uh, defined examples of what happens. Most people start out using drugs, they think they got control over it, and then at some point it controls them. They can't get rid of it, they can't stop it, they can't get away from it. They need deliverance. They need deliverance. But the same is true for anything, any other gods, any other things that we devote ourselves to. It could be a career. It can be devotion to yourself. It can be devotion to all sorts of little things. We have always these little idols that we develop in our hearts that we devote ourselves to. We devote our time. We tithe money to it. We go to worship services in it, even though we might call it a Super Bowl party. It's like we're having church, and we're having communion, even though it's like chips and dip. We're having communion. We're having church. Somebody tithe. They're passing around the money because somebody's like, we gotta, we got to tithe. we got to donate to this. And the reality is, is we do have these little gods that we worship and devote ourselves to. And what ends up happening is these things can control us. And we need to be delivered from them. And that's what the psalmist says. The way that God comes and delivers people is by his word. He sends out his word, and he heals from our defilement, and he delivers from the bondage of these idols. God saves, and he does so through his word. The next verse I want you guys to take a look at is, says this in Psalm um, 119. It says, how sweet are your words uh, to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. What what I love about this verse is basically the psalmist helps us to think through this, because he's like, um, makes a distinction between following God's word, which leads to life, leads to light, helps us, brings about freedom, um, a deliverance, but then he talks about, that's why I don't want to go any false way. So the false way leads to darkness, leads to death, leads to destruction, but the path to life is actually God's word. He says, God, your word is sweet to my taste. I eat it, it tastes amazing because it brings life to me. Take a look at the next verse. Um, Ezekiel chapter 3, this is where we get actually, I think, uh, the illustration that John uses here uh, to define eating the word. Ezekiel chapter 3 verse 1, he says, then he said to me, son of man, eat this scroll and go, speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me this scroll to eat and then I ate it and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. So Ezekiel, one of the prophets of God, 
was asked by God to go and preach and proclaim God's word to the house of Israel. This was during the time or just before the time in which they were going to be taken off into exile. And so Ezekiel preaches to, you know, by the Babylonians. And so Ezekiel's preaching to these people. And uh, there, he says, I, I eat and I've eaten God's word and it was sweet to my soul. It was sweet to my mouth. It tasted good. And, but at the same time, it also had sort of this negative aspect to it where it was a word of judgment. So it also had bitterness to it. But what I want you guys to basically see with, it, with regard to this is that Jews viewed God's word as being sacred, as being something important. Uh, years ago, I read a book that radically changed my life. Uh, it's by a guy named John Piper, and he, spoke, he speaks about the idea of seeing God's word or loving the Bible. And I love the way he described it. The way that he described it has, since I read that, radically changed the way that I view my Bible. I kind of grew up in a, in a tradition that understood the Bible is all about you know, trying to understand it correctly and interpret it properly and soundly and have a proper way of expositionally teaching it and so on and so forth. But to be honest with you, it could be very easily misconstrued as if you know, we, we love the Bible. The Bible is the end in and of itself. And the way John Piper described it really helped me because he describes it like this. We love our Bibles the way that we love our eyes. We love our eyes... Nobody that goes around like, I'm so in love with my eyes. I love you eyes. You know, nobody like loves their eyes, but we love our eyes. I mean, like if we, if we had our eyes gouged out today, we'd all be bummed. Why? Because we can't see. We love our eyes because our eyes allow us to see babies being born. We love our eyes because our eyes allow us to see beautiful sunsets and sunrises. And we love our eyes because our eyes allow us to see beauty. In the same way we love our Bibles, because the Bible allows us to see God. God is the end. Not just sound teaching. Not just somehow expositing the scripture. That's not the goal. The goal is not just somehow getting it theologically sound and correct. That's not what we're shooting for. That's not what we're aiming at. We're aiming for Jesus. And when the scriptures are viewed like that as a lens that focuses on Jesus, that allows us to see Christ, then that allows us to respond properly by worshiping God, by singing praise to him, by trusting him with our sin, with our defilement, with our areas in our lives of unforgiveness towards other people. We trust him. We see him clearly. We love our Bibles in the same way that we love our eyes. Our eyes help us to see beauty. Our Bibles help us to see Jesus. This is the way the Hebrews would have seen it. And this is why, to make my point totally solid and hopefully clear, when Jesus was on the earth and he's talking with the scribes and Pharisees, you got to understand, scribes and Pharisees were the religious leaders of the day, and these guys were brilliant theologians. They weren't dumb. They weren't necessarily bad guys. They were brilliant theologians. They were the scholars, the Bible teachers, the pastors of the day. They knew the Bible. They memorized much of the scripture. But Jesus says this to them. He says, you guys search the scriptures because in them they think you have life. But in reality, these scriptures point to me. And none of you are falling at my feet and worshiping me. None of you are worshiping me. None of you are honoring me. Instead, you guys want to put me to death. So in reality, you use the scriptures, but you use the scriptures to accomplish your own ends, whereby at the end of the day, you're God and God's not. You use the scriptures as a means to accomplish your purposes, 
That might be control. He uses scriptures to control people, to bind heavy burdens on people's backs because the more burdens that you can tie up on other people's backs by legalistically judging them and criticizing them, the better you feel about yourself. And the more indebted God, you think, is to you, he owes you something because after all, you tie 10% of everything you have. He says, understanding the scriptures leads you to me. When you're led to me, you're humble, and you love me, and you worship me, and you honor me. The point that I want to make is this, is that if we read the scriptures correctly, the scriptures will lead us to Jesus. We will love Jesus. We will honor Christ. We will worship Jesus. We'll be humble. We'll be people that want to know God's word. We're not, let me put it this way. If you're the type of person that reads the scripture, and you walk away from the scripture, and you feel like, God's in my corner. Now I know I'm right. I, everything I say is right, and I'm going to go argue with somebody down at farmer's market and tell them they're wrong. I'm just saying, you're not being led to Jesus. You're using the scriptures rather than letting them have dominion and ability and authority over you. The scriptures must have authority over us, not us over them. And when they have authority over us, they will lead us to Jesus, and we will be humble, we will worship Christ, we will be moved by him, We will be able to trust him with our sin. We will be able to trust him with the cares of our lives. We will be able to trust him with our hurts, our fears, our joys, our sorrows. Because the scriptures rightly allow us to see Jesus. Does that make sense? They understood this. And so John says, I ate the word. I ate the scroll. And as I ate the scroll, the first thing that ends up happening, it kind of brings us to the the next thing, almost done here, when he talks about the response. And the first response that John basically has with God's word, is it sweet in his mouth. It's sweet in his mouth. He realizes, I'm certain, that there are a lot of benefits that come with trusting God. There's a lot of good things that God brings. I mean, we've just read a handful of these things over the past few weeks. It talks about in heaven, there's going to be these unbelievable colors and music and art and poetry and singing and hordes and hordes and just millions and perhaps billions of not just people, but beings, things that we could never even imagine there, worshiping Christ. It'll be absolutely mind-blowing. A part of the scriptures that reveals to us that our sins are forgiven. And one of the things that keeps sort of being a reoccurring theme throughout the book of Revelation is that vindication will happen. Now imagine this. Imagine if you live first century in an area where your city was putting Christians under great persecution. So here you are. You can't even go to church Uh, bring in your Bible, because if you do, someone might see you, uh, they might turn you in, a soldier might arrest you, and uh, they might not do anything to you, but they might end up threatening to hurt your family. How'd you feel about that? You're like, I didn't do anything wrong, I just read my Bible. Exactly, we hate you. Like, I love Jesus. Because you love Jesus, we want to kill you. Because you love Jesus, we'll kill your kid. And I'm not kidding. These are things that happen. These are things that are happening in the world today. I mean, we live in America. We forget this stuff. And we don't like to watch those TV programs on that because there's always a Seinfeld episode on that we can just flip to anyhow and just forget about it. My point is this, is that people who live in a world where they recognize that injustice is ruling, they cry out to God. God, vindicate us. God, when are you going to come? When are you going to make the wrongs Right? And John reads about this, and he's just like, there's going to come a day when God's going to make the wrongs right. It'll be right. Justice will come. And that's sweet. 
But what I want you to see is what we've been noticing all the way up to this point, is that the purpose or the main point of all the sweetness is not just the fringe benefits of being made vindicated or having sins forgiven or being in a company of millions and millions of amazing creatures and beings and friends eating good food, but it's Jesus. Let me ask you this. If, if you were allowed to go to a place, let's just call it heaven, hypothetically. If you were allowed to go to a place where it had all your favorite people there, everybody you can imagine that you'd ever want to hang with, all your favorite food, all your favorite little gadgets, the iPad is there. Imagine every little thing, all the best movies you can imagine, all the best food, all the best art, all the people that you don't like aren't there, so you're stoked on that as well. Your sins would be forgiven. You feel pure inside. You feel clean inside. You feel really good inside. If you had all of this that you can imagine that we would look at and say, this is good. But Jesus wasn't there. If Jesus wasn't there, let me ask you, would that still be heaven? I mean, would that still be heaven to you? Now, I know in our culture, in our Christian, you know, we're really quick to just be like, oh, of course not. But I mean, really, honestly, if that's the case, then there's problems in our lives because for the most part we live our lives in a way that sort of carries on this mentality of life's great Jesus isn't in it we want everything else we send messages to the world that everything else in this world is satisfying even if Jesus is not there so here's what I basically want to say with regard to that is the point that I want to want to make is that heaven is about Jesus He is what makes heaven glorious. He is the source of all beauty, of all glory, of all sweetness. And John, as he eats the word, he realizes there's sweetness to this. Yes, there's forgiveness. Yes, God will vindicate. Yes, God will bring about sort of this massive reuniting of all of our good friends and maybe family members that have died because we've been persecuted for the faith. Yes, there'll be food that will be absolutely beyond comprehension that will taste good. Yes, there'll be colors and art and music and sounds and sights and animals and creatures and things that are part of God's creation we can never even imagine. But all of that would not be sweet if Christ isn't there. You understand that a non-Christian, a non-Christian, somebody who's not born again, can look at the fact and be like, I'll take forgiveness. I'll take a spot where, you know, everything's amazing. I'll take a spot or a vacation spot where there's the best food there, best colors, best music, best poetry, best TV shows, best everything. It doesn't take a Christian to be excited about that. But it takes someone who's been born again to be in love with Jesus, to see Jesus as the treasure. Only Christians can say, you know what? Christ alone is the treasure. Everything else is just a fringe benefit. And John recognizes, he eats the word, and it brings sweetness to his mouth. The second thing that is sort of a response to this, a reaction, is that John has sort of this bitterness in his stomach. I think probably this has to do with the fact of the nature of the prophecy, of the things that he's being delivered, things that he's heard about, that there's a sense of judgment. I think this idea sort of harkens back to the Old Testament when Moses was about to go to the promised land. Uh, he was, uh, in essence, ordered to uh, read or pronounce, uh, they called it these uh, blessings and curses. 
And the idea behind it was if you walk in God's ways, if you, you know, honor God, if you do the things that God calls you to do, you'll be honored. You'll be blessing your civilization. Your people will be honored and blessed. Your kids will be blessed and your crops will grow and God will take good care of you and civilization will work well. But God went on to say, if you don't honor me, in other words, if, you know, if, if husbands uh, don't keep their eyes off of their neighbor's wives and they desire them in a lustful way, or if guys or people uh, steal from next door neighbors and they create sort of this break in destruction in the civilization there in that culture, then God says there will be curses. People will rise against each other. They will hate each other. They will fight each other. They will want to destroy each other. They will start taking out their aggression upon each other. It'll be sort of this tribal mentality where one family member will rise up and fight against another family and things will escalate. And God says, this is a curse. This is not good. This is not the way that I desire for things to be. These are not blessing, blessings that I desire for you. Judgment will come. And there's a sense where judgment will come in sort of a passive sense. There is a passive type judgment of God that takes place when we just choose not to obey God and we bring about difficult things in our lives. That happens. It's part of kind of God's passive judgment. But then there will be an active judgment one day when every human being will stand before God and we will give an account. And this is why Jesus would say there will come a day when the angels will finally come and they will sort of have this massive final harvest at the end of the ages and those who love Christ those who honor Christ, Jesus describes, these are like my sheep. And there are also those sort of intermingled in the sheep that don't love me, that don't hear my voice. They, they don't see me as their shepherd. In fact, they run from me. They resist me. They don't want me in their life. And Jesus says, they will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping. There will be gnashing of teeth. That is sort of God's active judgment against humanity. There's a passive and an active judgment. I think John, as he eats the word, as he understands the fact that there is a blessing that comes by Christ giving himself to us, but there's also uh, a judgment that comes. There's an element that should we not listen to what God has to say? Should we just simply blow God off? Should we just sort of turn our backs on God and continue to worship and love and serve and honor and devote ourselves, time, energy, and money to idols? we will find ourselves being destroyed. And John realizes this, and he's bummed. And he's just, it's like, this is like bitterness to my stomach. And then the final thing that John describes is he says, he basically receives this commission in verse 11. He says this, I'm just about dumb. He wraps it up and he says, and I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. So John says, as I uh, consumed God's word, as I ate the book, as I ate the scroll, began to realize there came sort of this commission to go forth and to communicate the things that I've heard, communicate the things that I've learned. This is really important. And often, you know, let me just be honest with you. This is one of those parts in the sermons that oftentimes pastors are like, okay, here's my opportunity to just make everybody feel really bad because they don't preach the gospel enough. They don't witness enough. They aren't doing it enough. They're not telling the gospel to their family members. They're not going out witnessing on farmer's market. You guys are just a bunch of losers. Shape up or don't come back. You're like, serious? I'm just kidding. I'm just totally kidding. But my point is this, is that pastors always have this tendency to just want to sort of bring the law down. And say, you got to do more. you got to act more. you got to be doing better. And to be really quite frank with you, it doesn't help. 
other than make people feel really destroyed. It doesn't help. It's not helpful when a pastor's up there saying, you should be doing this, you're failing in this, woe are you. But what I want to basically try to realistically do is ask the question, how do we view God's word in our life? Do we consume it? Do we eat the book? Do we love the book? Is it sweetness to us? But is there also an element whereby we recognize there's kind of a bitterness about it? There is a sense that people whom we know, perhaps even people in this church right now, in this building right now, in this gathering right now, you might be here and you, know, you, you, you might not make it to the end of the day. I don't know. I'm not trying to be all like super crazy about this type of stuff, but the point that I'm trying to make is this, is that we don't know, we don't have any guarantees on our life. We really don't. But the point that I would make is that what are we doing with God's word? See, if we know God, if we've been transformed by his goodness, if we really see Jesus as the sole good news himself, if he is the gospel, if Jesus is the gospel, that's good news. Good news should not be hard to tell people about. There's a couple in our church. We've had a lot of couples in our church that have babies. And this couple just had a baby a couple days ago. Uh, Their name's Jonathan and Jessica. And she was in labor for, I don't know how long, it was a long time. A long time. And uh, she ended up having a C-section. That was kind of a bummer, you know, because, you know, you imagine after having labor that long and then have to have a C-section, you're always kind of like, ah. But here's the deal. Later on that day when she had the baby, they were putting out tweets and they were like posting their Facebook pictures of the baby. And they were, you know what they were doing? They literally were transformed into evangelists. You know the message, the good news they were preaching? was the arrival of their baby. You think anybody had to sit down with me like, look, the first thing you gotta do is tell people you got a baby. You got to. And if you don't, you're horrible parents. Losers. Losers. So do it. No, nobody has to tell a parent to tell other people about their child. They do it naturally. They love their child. All parents love their child. Some kids are cuter than others, but all parents love their children, and they want to proclaim the good news, the gospel of their children. And in the same way, Christ, if he's good, Christ, if he's good news to us, Christ, if he's changed our lives and we see him as good, We want people to know about Christ. So the question that I would ask you is this. If you look at it, you're like, I never tell people about Jesus. I don't want to tell people about Jesus. It's kind of my own private little faith. I just would have to ask you, do you see the goodness of Christ? Do you really see how good he is? I mean, there's so many crazy things that we can get excited about that at the end of the day, we're not still celebrating. Who's still celebrating the outcoming of the Super Bowl? Who? Anybody? Anybody having a party today for that? It's old news. You understand what I'm saying? It's old news. And some people spend a lot of money, exert a lot of energy, a lot of time and effort went into the planning of that. But it's old news. How much greater is Christ who saves us, who keeps giving, who will bring us back home, bring us home to him one day, where we will see Jesus as he truly is, that he is and will be revealed to us as the fountainhead of all beauty, of all glory, of all goodness, 
of all. Music will come from him. Songs will be sung to him. People, things that he has created, we will be a part of all of that in this universal movement of God where he will redeem all things. Not that every single human being that has been made will be redeemed. I'm not speaking about universalism in a sense where everybody will be saved because that's not true. But the reality is, is that God will redeem all things and he will restore all things and we get to be part of that. That's really incredibly good news. This is why I would say, if we have actually eaten the book, if we've eaten the scroll, if we've eaten God's word, and we see it as sweet, we see Jesus as sweet, the natural byproduct of eating something really good is we want to tell somebody about it. It's just natural. But there's also a bitterness that comes out about it as well. I'm going to finish with this. I'm going to have the worship team come on up right now. You need both. There's some people that are just about the judgment. You know what people are talking about? You're like, I ran into that guy down at Farmers. Yeah, you probably did. The angry guy, right? I'm not, I'm not pinpointing anybody. I'm just saying, there are people that are like angry, and they want to tell everybody about the judgment of Christ. There are other people that are like, you know, Jesus is love. John realizes there's both. There's sweetness, and there's bitterness. And the two go together. Because to trust in Christ is to engage the sweetness. To reject Christ, to turn away from him, is the bitterness. Judgment. You guys, I hope above me on all things, that for us as a church, that what we are about is Jesus. That we get Jesus. That we see Jesus as the gospel. He's not just a fringe benefit. Heaven is not just some place we go to. It is more about the king. We love the king. We love who he is and what he has done. There are many, many benefits that Jesus brings about in our lives. But Jesus ultimately is the good news. I hope you know him. I hope you trust him. We're going to respond. We're going to sing. Just like in heaven, people sing to Christ. Just like in heaven, there will be people on their hands and knees worshiping Christ raising their hands to Christ, standing in awe of Christ. So we here too, we want to respond. So let your body be an actual physical response to what's going on in here. That's what we say. You guys stand, get on your knees. I don't care if you sit down. Just worship Christ. As long as Christ is there, as long as you're doing it for Christ because you love Christ and not to be seen by everybody, worship Christ with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, and might. We'll respond by giving our tithes and our offerings. If you're one of our guests, please don't feel any obligation to give. This is an opportunity for you who love Jesus, who are part of this church, who love this church, who love this body, for you to give joyfully and generously back to Christ. Some of you may need to respond by confessing sin and getting made right with Christ. And finally, we'll respond by partaking communion. We have communion in the back, three areas in the back there. For you to respond, remember what Jesus did for you on the cross. By trusting him, by loving him. I'm going to pray. We'll sing. We'll respond. We'll worship. Jesus, thank you for the cross. We devote ourselves to you right now. God, some of us right now, I'm, I'm certain, just need to confess idols in their life and repent from sin that they've clung to, sin that has defiled them, sin that has destroyed them. And yet, Jesus, you desire to make right. God, your judgment will come. Either it will come one day in the future upon those who have rejected you, or we can also trust in the fact that your judgment has already come 2,000 years ago on your son. And that's why we love Jesus. That's why we love the cross. The cross speaks to us. 
of a judgment that's past and of a heaven that's to be gained and of a God to be seen, to be worshiped, to be loved, to be adored. So God, help us even now to respond to you in love, to sing our songs of praise.